Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Good morning. My name is Amy and I'm one of the pastors on the team here and I am happy to be with you all this morning as we continue to live in this season of the church calendar called Ordinary Time and learn from the Gospel of Luke. This Gospel is a beautiful book full of stories of Jesus' life and it's a perfect companion as we move through this season. It's interesting to be aware of the fact that Luke, the author, was a Gentile, which means that he was writing from a different perspective than the primarily Jewish writers of the Bible. His focus was much more inclusive and global. Luke was very intentional in helping his listeners see that Jesus' gift of salvation was for all of humanity, no matter their race, gender, social status, or whatever divisions existed in culture then or today. Over the past few weeks and up until Advent, we will continue to read through Luke, getting to know a variety of men and women, examining their stories, hearing their questions and struggles, listening in on their conversations, and hopefully seeing ourselves a bit in their lives. Today's passage finds us in the midst of the disciples wanting to learn from Jesus. In this moment, they are curious about prayer. I think it's a safe bet to guess that many of us are curious about prayer. Whether you're new to following Jesus or have been at it for decades, learning to pray is a journey for all of us. I've been a believer since as far back as I can remember, and I have probably prayed every type of prayer imaginable. From casual, off-the-cuff prayers that are a mess of feelings and emotions, to historical, liturgical prayers and everything in between. I have turned to prayer as I grieved the death of my dad. I've cried out in prayer as my marriage faltered and eventually ended. I've prayed for my kids, for their safety, for their faith, for their futures. I've prayed through two cancer scares and subsequent surgeries and treatments. Prayer has shaped me, has formed my faith and my understanding of God more than any other practice. For the last two plus years, I've been meeting with a group of women every week to pray liturgically, which means we pray through a series of written prayers and we allow for good amounts of silence before we close with a psalm each week. And at the end of our hour, we each share what we're hearing from God. And every week, the Holy Spirit stirs our hearts and guides our conversation in ways that are challenging, encouraging, and absolutely formative. Each week as I pray with these women, I come away with a sense of shalva. This is a Hebrew word that I learned from Eugene Peterson, and it describes the posture of someone who knows that everything is all right because God is over us, with us, and for us in Jesus Christ. I don't obtain this sense of peace because my prayers get answered the way I want. I come to a place of shalva because my prayer time leads me to trust and believe that God is who he says he is, and that's enough. For me, in this season, having written prayers has been life-giving. And while I absolutely think there is plenty of room for spontaneous prayer in our lives, our 
passage today shows us that Jesus believed in written prayers also. Let's use our imaginations a bit to visualize the scene for this passage. Jesus and the disciples are on their way to Jerusalem, and Jesus knows what's coming for him and also for his disciples. They will face persecution and struggle for the rest of their lives, and I'm sure his heart would often break for them. The disciples have been with Jesus every hour of every day for quite a while, observing him, listening to him, talking to each other as they wrestle with all that they're learning. They've seen him pray a lot, and they've seen the effect that time spent in prayer has on Jesus, and they want to know how to experience what he's experiencing. Jesus wasn't in a place of shalva because hashtag life is good. He was at peace because of his consistent and utter dependence on God. And the disciples witnessed this enough to want to know how to do the same. Having your rabbi teach you prayers was a normal part of learning. John the Baptist taught his followers prayers, so the disciples asked for just this, teach us to pray like John did. But Jesus, being Jesus, knows that merely learning the words isn't what they really need. He gives them more, which we'll look at in just a minute. But first, it's important to know that this isn't the first time Jesus has given his followers this prayer. This passage in Luke is a sort of condensed version of the prayer he gave during the Sermon on the Mount. We find that passage in the book of Matthew, and it's the passage that has shaped the prayer churches have been praying for centuries. In these verses in Luke, Jesus gives a few lines of that prayer, almost like a reminder to the disciples that they already have these words. He's answered this question before. But the new information he has for them comes in the parables that follow the prayer reminder. So if you don't mind, I'm going to jump ahead a bit and then come back to the prayer. The parables in verse 5 through 13 give us a unique lens with which to understand how to pray the actual prayer. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he uses stories like these as a means for helping his followers understand a difficult concept. And I'd say praying falls into that category, wouldn't you? How many of you struggle with knowing how to pray? Should I pray alone? Should I pray with other people where three or more are gathered, right? Should I light a candle? How much talking do I do? Should I just be quiet and listen? What if I get distracted? Should I pray the scriptures or written prayers? Which written prayers? When should I pray? In the morning? At bedtime? Both? Whenever I feel like it? So many options. And in this story, we see that we aren't alone in wondering about prayer. The disciples themselves are asking Jesus, teach us to pray. Jesus replies with a reminder of the words they already know. They know what to pray, but then he gives them more. He uses some stories to help give deeper meaning to the words that they have. Remember that Luke was speaking from the perspective of someone who was raised a Gentile, someone who didn't grow up steeped in the traditions and stories of Judaism. Luke is going to focus in on those stories and moments when Jesus was clearly teaching in ways that would shift a Jew's understanding of God and of faith and in ways that would draw Gentiles into this Jewish rabbi's words. In all nine of these verses, Jesus is challenging his listeners to rethink their understanding of God as a father. The disciples were asking to pray, so why did Jesus pivot to these stories about hospitality and fatherly care? I think it's safe to assume that Jesus knew what the thing behind the thing was in the disciples' questions. 
The disciples had observed Jesus praying many times. Surely they were familiar with the words that Jesus prayed. They knew the Psalms and other Jewish scriptures. But something about the way that Jesus prayed made them pause and wonder how they too could have this kind of prayer life. His followers were in need of more than just a prayer to memorize. So Jesus doesn't stop at the words. He goes deeper and answers the real question the disciples were asking. How do we really pray to God? I mean, how do we do this? And in answer, Jesus gives us these stories. In verse 5, we read, Then Jesus said to them, Suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door's already locked, and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray, and he gives them a story about a persistent neighbor and a reluctant bread giver. How is this teaching us to pray? Well, the story gives us an example of both sides of the conversation. We have someone with an urgent need, and we have someone with the means to meet that need. Remember that the purpose of a parable is to help us understand a bigger concept. In this story, Jesus is giving us contrast through a story that everyone in his listening audience would have understood. The neighbor who's in bed, asleep, with zero interest in being roused to answer the door, will do it. He will get up and meet his friend's knees because culture dictates that he will. The laws of hospitality in ancient Middle East were strict, and if a traveler arrived needing food and shelter, one was under an obligation to provide it. I imagine the listening audience snickering a bit at this story. They can relate. Don't you hate it when someone knocks on your door in the middle of the night and you have to get up and give them food? I hate it when that happens. His heart may not be in it, but he'll do it. This tired and annoyed man is given as a contrast to our ever awake, always loving father. If even this man will rise to meet his friend's needs, how much more will God meet ours? In addition to learning about God's care for us through the contrast of the sleepy neighbor, I think we should also pay attention to the neighbor at the door. I've often thought of this story as an exhortation to sort of badger God until he answers the prayer with the way you want. But as I studied this passage, I saw a different nuance to this story. I don't think it's so much about persistent asking. I think it's more about our heart. This needy neighbor absolutely believed that the door would eventually be answered. He wouldn't have stood there pounding if not. He was bold and he was insistent, but not because he was trying to force or control the outcome, but because he believed he would eventually be taken care of. And how can we bring this mindset to our prayers? I think that is exactly why Jesus gave this parable. His listeners would be having aha moments right about now. Pray or knock repeatedly, not because our Father will only reply if we badger him. That would put us in charge of the situation. But pray or knock repeatedly because our Father longs for us to know with absolute boldness and confidence that your needs will be met. This is the mindset Jesus is encouraging through this story. Pray the words with confidence and boldness because your Father is not asleep. He is ready and willing to meet you. 
Picking up in verse 9, we read, So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. These verses are often confusing in that at first glance, it seems to paint God as a sort of magic vending machine. Whatever we want, just ask for it, and voila, you'll receive it. But I would wager that doesn't quite seem right when we really think about it. What kind of God would that be if he was controlled by everyone's whims? Feels pretty chaotic to me. So what do these verses teach us? Well, they sit in between two stories that Jesus is telling to help his disciples understand God as a loving and attentive father. In these verses, he's encouraging the listener to be active in the relationship. Ask, seek, knock, be bold. Like the neighbor looking for some extra bread, carry the knowledge that God will reply and ask with confidence. We can trust God as the type of father who will give us what we need. He knows when we ask what we truly need, just like Jesus giving the disciples parables when they asked him to learn to pray. He gave them what they wanted, but he also gave them what they needed, a deeper understanding of the character of God. To bring his point home, Jesus gives us one more story about the character of God, our Father. We read in verse 11, Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? Jesus uses an extreme example here to reject any ideas of a punishing or vengeful father. I assume that most of us receiving a snake or a scorpion from their father is not a good thing, right? I mean, unless Rick Gerhardt is your father, and then this is apparently a common and celebrated occurrence. (laughs) But for the rest of us, we can join with the disciples in this moment and easily identify the type of father Jesus is talking about one who gives their children what they need. Jesus is asking his followers, his listeners, to let go of any images they may hold of a vengeful or unattentive father. He uses these extreme examples to give the disciples what they were asking for. They asked to learn to pray, and he is giving them the understanding they need to do just that. To pray like Jesus, they need to reshape their understanding of God and begin to see God as their father in all the best sense of the word. A father who answers the door when there's a knock. A father who knows best of all exactly what his children need, even when they ask for something else. He knows the real need and is ready to meet it. A father who longs to provide us with good things. And then in verse 13, Jesus summarizes these little stories. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And he answers the questions of just what the ultimate gift is from the Father in heaven, the Holy Spirit given freely to those who ask. The disciples were given what they asked for, a prayer, but more importantly, they were given what they needed to see God as a loving, approachable Father, and to know that the gift of the Holy Spirit would be theirs for the asking. We, too, can receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and how do we open that gift? We ask, we seek, we knock. In other words, we pray. So, are we ready to look back over the prayer with the understanding that we are praying to God the Father who loves us? I am sure I will be able to completely 
unpack and explain all the nuances of this prayer in the next 12 minutes. In spite of what I'm sure will be unanswered questions, I do hope that you leave this morning with a deeper appreciation for the beauty, simplicity, and completeness of the Lord's Prayer, and that you grow in your confidence of praying this prayer regularly so that you experience the Holy Spirit's work in your life more and more each day. I'd like to look over the prayer and the form that we use here at Antioch. It's the same prayer, just closer to the version given to us in the book of Matthew. While the wording we use is based on the prayer from the Sermon on the Mount, centuries of believers praying have led to some varieties of words and phrases and have given us an ending that does not appear in either version from the Gospels. Let's jump in at the beginning. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. These opening lines give us the opportunity to remember who we are talking to, our Father, but also to the God of the universe who resides in heaven and whose very name is hallowed or holy. In Hebrew, to know someone's name was to know that person's character. When we pray this line, we are reminding ourselves that the name of God is to be hallowed because God's character is holy and perfect. We are reminding ourselves of just who we are coming of just who we are coming before and orienting ourselves towards a posture of awe, reverence, and respect. Hallowed is a weird word, one we don't use in everyday speech, and I kind of like that. The very word is a reminder that there is no God but God. These first two lines give us two halves of the whole picture of God. We approach confidently because he is our father who loves us as his precious child, but we also approach with the awareness that God is holy and set apart. What a contrast and what an awesome privilege to speak to God in all his glory as we would speak to a tender, caring father. Matthew's prayer opens with our father and Luke's with just father, and these two examples show both the corporate nature of the prayer and the individual, both and. As we pray together as a congregation, we use our father because we're coming before the Lord as a body. When you pray on your own sometimes, you may need the absolute love and intimacy of coming before your Father just as yourself, and that's okay. And sometimes you may feel the Holy Spirit convicting you to pray as a part of a larger body and to remind yourself that God is our Father, not just yours. Listen to the promptings of the Holy Spirit as you pray and be willing to set your mind as God would have you in that moment. Next, thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Stop and realize what a radical request this is and all that it entails. Every petition, need, want, desire we could ever imagine is met in this request. The coming kingdom comes with it, the reconciliation of all things. Praying this line is an all-encompassing way to pray for anything that is broken in your life. Prayers for healing, prayers for release from addiction, prayers for an end to war, famine, strife, are all asking for the kingdom of God to touch down and reconcile what is broken. And yet we acknowledge that the way that God's kingdom comes down must be reflective of God's will. Ultimately, our request to fix things that seem broken to us carry only the weight of our human perspectives. We are absolutely encouraged to pray for what we see, what we want, what we fear. 
Jesus modeled this beautifully and painfully in the moments before his arrest when he prayed three times to the Father that the circumstances would be changed. In the book of Matthew, we read, Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus is praying for the kingdom to come. Three times he asked God to take away this horrible torment and brokenness and that thy will be done, that things would play out on earth in such a way that heaven would break through. As we pray these lines of the Lord's Prayer, let's remember Jesus in this moment. We can bring our sorrow and overwhelming worries before God and ask that they be resolved, but then pause. Take a deep breath and acknowledge that the only way for true and absolute reconciliation and peace is for God's will to be done, not ours. Give us this day our daily bread. I think the most radical word in this piece of the prayer is the word us. Jesus is reminding us that we as individuals make up the church as a whole. Jesus is speaking both of our radical daily dependence on God and on each other. We are praying that God will provide for us each day. That means living as a community that is interconnected enough to share. One way that we practice this is through our tithes and offerings. We all give back a portion of what God has provided us, and then we as a church give back through our Compassion and Justice Fund. Every month, 10% of all tithes and offerings go right back out to provide for needs within our church community, needs in our city, support for our ministry partners in Central Oregon, our nation, and around the world. God is providing for us. And the realization of his provision being for us and not just me is incredibly challenging. Many of us have far more than we need each day. I know I do. And this moment in the Lord's Prayer is an open challenge to all of us to look around, pay attention to the needs of others, and live in dependence on God and on each other. Sometimes that means asking for help from others, and sometimes it means providing help for others. Trust that God will prompt you when you can give and when you can receive, and listen to those promptings and be a part of the interconnectedness God calls us to. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Anyone learn this prayer with a different word here? Sins, debts, transgressions? I doubt these debates will ever be resolved as the prayer wasn't written in English and so we're left trying to find just the right English word to best encompass the meaning of the word Jesus used. And as culture changes, the meanings of words shift. Historically and throughout different denominations, you'll see different words used here. The intention is the same regardless of the word and I'd argue that the most important word in this section isn't trespass or debt or sin, it's forgive. Forgive means to cancel, to wipe the slate clean, to erase whatever is owed. The debt we owe others is to love them as Jesus loves them, as Jesus loves us. And these lines in the prayer are a continual reminder that we are called to repent, to be honest about our shortcomings, whether we call them debts or trespasses, and to take the forgiveness, grace, and mercy we receive through our repentance and freely give it to others. 
This is a tall order for us all. And part of the reason that praying this prayer over and over, daily reminding ourselves of these words is the only way to gradually grow in ways that will allow us to live it out. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. These lines speak to the reality that we live in a broken world. Each day we are faced with temptations, and each temptation is a chance for us to choose God and to grow in our faith. These lines remind us that the strength, courage, and ability to make these choices come from God. He's the one ready and willing to lead and deliver us, and we tap into this power through the practice of prayer. Praying can serve to reorient our lives in views of the challenges we face. I don't mean to make this sound oversimplified. Prayer is a practice, which means we won't get better at it unless we keep at it. The mindset is common in many other areas of skills. Musicians know to practice. Uh, Athletes know they have to keep at it. Chefs keep reinventing recipes over and over again. I could go on, but learning to pray like Jesus also takes practice. So start where you are, stay with it, and let yourself be formed over time. And the prayer closes with, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And while this ending is not seen in either of the gospel accounts of the Lord's Prayer, it's widely agreed that it has been a part of the prayer since it first began being prayed among congregations of believers as far back as the first century. It's a beautiful recap of the prayer, calling our attention once again to the purpose of the prayer. It's God's kingdom we're seeking, how our prayers will be answered, by and only by the power of God, and why we offer prayers to glorify the God who created it all and will bring all things into reconciliation. I hope that looking at the parables and then going over the Lord's Prayer has given you new understanding, insights, and appreciation for this historic and beautiful prayer. I challenge you to embrace the prayer in the coming weeks. Pray it every day, to sit in the words of it and watch and see how God meets you there. If you haven't memorized the prayer, I encourage you to do that. There's an amazing sense of community that comes from committing prayers to heart. Pastor Linda and I recently had the opportunity to travel to Ireland, where we participated in a learning cohort of faith leaders across North America and the UK. While there, we were able to attend a prayer service at Christ Church Cathedral in Dublin. Worshippers have been gathering in that space for over a thousand years. And during the prayer service, we sat with believers from around the world and prayed the Lord's Prayer and a few liturgical prayers with one voice the same prayers that have been prayed for centuries. It was a beautiful experience to join together as a community through prayer, and I was thankful that I had spent the last few years praying liturgically as I had the prayers memorized. It really helped me feel connected to the greater global church. If you'd like to become familiar with um, some liturgical prayers, we have created these booklets for you. We edit and print them out for each season of the church calendar, And inside, you'll find the Lord's Prayer, as well as other historic prayers that align with this current season of ordinary time. We've also included a daily psalm and a weekly prayer from the Book of Common Prayer. For those of us who feel stuck back in the questions of how to pray, when to pray, what to pray, this booklet offers an excellent starting point. Praying through the prayers in this booklet will shape you and link you to believers around the world and across time. You can pick up a copy in the back on your way out. 
So as we prepare to receive the gift of communion, I'd like to pray the Lord's Prayer with you all one more time. Let the words shape you as we come before a Father who loves us, knows us, and longs to meet us in our needs this morning. Will you pray with me? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.